Fran and I feel that we should issue a quick trigger warning, as today's episode unfortunately contains sensitive discussion of not only child sexual abuse, but of child murder. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Danielle. I'm Fran. And this is Snow in the Mountains. Good morning to you. Hi, Fran. How are you today, my friend? I'm good. It's a it's a gorgeous, dreary sort of start to the morning, and I'm just kind of trying to soak up this, you know, lack of humidity and heat while we have a chance. Uh, you know, summer is imminent here in Georgia, and that means just sweltering heat. <laughs> I mean, how do you, you know, cope we- with that? You know, we both went away and it was like spring. It was chilly and a sweater and a light coat. Yes. And we come back and it's like shorts and you're you're dying of heat. It it's was like, so... what happened? <laughs> For it's... two weeks, what happened in those two weeks? It's nuts. And like, you know, I mean, we're still in the thick of baseball season. And, yeah. you know, I've got two young kids and um, one of which is an 11 year old boy. And God, you know, I mean, he just stinks when we come back from baseball so it's like oh, I'm in the tub oh my goodness but um you know things are really starting to pop in the garden um Good. my corn is almost up to my knee which I'm real excited about and then well because don't they say knee high by the fourth of July I've never heard that but I don't that know who they cool. are but I'm pretty sure they say that <laughs> um well I have to tell you I have eight humongous blueberry bushes and I fertilized them this year yeah and I probably have I don't know 20,000 blueberries right now that's incredible so you have to come and pick I, would love I to can't do it all we have had several big harvests of raspberries and strawberries oh. from our yard already so I will definitely trade you some raspberries for some blueberries absolutely that's awesome um well I'm really kind of anxious to get into this case today. And um, before we do, I do want to issue just a bit of a trigger warning to our audience because there are some pretty sensitive details involved in this case. Um, We have a murder victim today and she is a 14 year old girl. And um, there are some, some pieces of this case where we're going to, you know, gently um, have to touch on you know, an instance of sexual assault and um, rape. And it's, it's unfortunate. It's a, it's a terrible tragedy. um, And one that I'm sure is still heavy on your mind to this day. She, uh, she was actually at the the time of her death, she was 13, as I recall. And uh, she was living and who was she, she is Lisa Garish. She lived in Demarest, Georgia, which is in Habersham County. And she lived with her father, John, and her her brother's name was Michael. And uh, she lived there. She went to school at Habersham County School, and she rode the school bus. Um, she was just your regular ninth grade teenager. Yeah. And, and I got to tell you, as a, as a mother, and I mean... <laughs> as a human, um, this is really hard for me to imagine, but, um, I want to read you an excerpt that I found online that will really kind of 
set the scene for us today. Um, and then I certainly want to hear how this all unfolded from your perspective, because I know you were one of the first on the scene. Um, so here we have it. We're going back in time to November 1st, 1978. And 13-year-old Lisa, as you said, lived with her father and her 16-year-old brother, Michael. The school bus dropped Lisa off on her road at 3.30 in the afternoon and Lisa spoke with her brother before he left to pick up a friend on his way to work. So just before 4 p.m. when Michael was clocking in at his job, a neighbor who lived across the street from the Garish house heard what he thought was a scream. Lisa's father arrived home at 4.30 that afternoon and discovered Lisa lying on his bedroom floor. She'd been shot four times with a 38 caliber revolver and her chin and her hand were cut. Police found blood stains going from the den to the kitchen and then through the living room to the back bedroom. Around 5.30 p.m., canine handlers used two track dogs to pick up a trail that was 125 to 150 yards behind the Garish residence and followed that track to a creek um, and eventually to the back of the neighbor's residence. And the tracks were less than four hours old. Um, right. Later that evening, Lisa's dad discovered that his handgun was missing true yes it was a very it was a very my my partner case agent at the time was james t hallman uh, he was uh, a senior agent senior of me and he was actually the case agent on this and later in in our episode he actually i actually was able to find him and interview him. So he will go into some detail as he recalls what he did at the That's scene. Amazing. Uh, what I recall about the scene is to set the picture is uh, this is a very small community, Demarest. Um, she got off the bus and she was riding the bus with the neighbor, Tony Pruitt. Uh, Tony is about 14, 15 years old. Um, she has a routine. She goes in the house. The evidence that we saw showed that she, this is a traditional ranch home. Okay. All on one level. They had turned the garage into a den. Okay. So if you're facing the house, the den is on the left. And then you walk into an open area, which is the kitchen. You go down a hall. There's a bedroom on the left, another bedroom on the left. You straight ahead is the bathroom and her bedroom was on the right. So if you can visualize that, that kind of sets the scene for the um, atmosphere and the layout of the house, which is important in the case. Yeah, absolutely. There is the back door to the den that faces, that goes out the back of the house to the woods. Okay, there's all woods back there. And Tony Pruitt lived to the right of the house as you're facing the house okay. in this in a, in a similar type of home now is this um is this kind of a neighborhood or is this just a, a traditional bit? street with ranch homes okay this so not what you consider a subdivision yeah demarest is a bit more rural at this yes. time right sort of like yes. the area that we live in um so the homes i would assume are are a little bit spread out. I think I read some yes. online that Tony's house was maybe a hundred yards from That's correct. Lisa's. That's correct. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, the evidence showed when uh, we got there that it appears that she had come in 
and um, got a glass of tea, went to the hearth, which was on the wall, the outside wall in the den, put her tea on the hearth, and there's a recliner there. So we surmise, surmise that uh, the perpetrator came in through the back door, um, probably came around her with a knife because she has defensive wounds on her hands. Okay. One of her fingers was almost completely cut off. So this was something where she was, she was uh, shocked and she grabbed the knife so right. hard that it almost cut her hand, right. her finger off. So with that, she evidently got up. She was bleeding. There's blood drops on the floor going to the kitchen sink. So we follow her to the kitchen sink where there's blood. Then we follow her, which is the blood, to down the hall. And we determined from the father that he had a Charter Arms 38 caliber pistol that was in a closet in his room. His room was the last room, bedroom on the left. Michael's room, which was the son, was the first bedroom on the left. And her bedroom was on the right. Bathroom was in the middle at the end of the hall. So it appears that she was angry enough to go and try to find this gun because she knew where it was. She found the gun. Struggle ensued with the perpetrator. And he got the gun and shot her. Wow, Lisa. I mean... 14 years old how 13 really she was 13 at this time I mean how brave of her I mean in this moment of sheer terror that somebody approaches you with a blade and you are literally fighting for your life uh, you know just to even have the sense to go to your father's bedroom and and look for a gun I mean what a brave young lady this is just such a tragedy there was no um I think there was other things going on uh, later as the case evolved. We, we determined that it, it was subsequently the neighbor that did it. But she, you know, she is 13. She's just coming into her womanhood, so to sure. speak. Yeah. Uh, there's no mother in the home. Right. It's just the father and the brother. So I think there was uh, some, probably some sexual activity trying to go on maybe she did not want to participate with with uh the the guy next door tony who was later accused of her murder uh and is subsequently serving time he's still in prison uh but uh i think that's what was going on and she just decided she she didn't want to have any part of it especially after he came in with a knife um so what happened was uh it was kind of misleading originally because we didn't know she was shot. We didn't know that the gun was missing when we got there. So we thought she had been stabbed. There was a wound to her neck that appeared to be a stab wound mm -hmm. because we thought because of the defensive wound on the hand, she'd been stabbed. And then right. there was, after the autopsy, uh, we determined that she had been shot. Uh, she'd been shot three times. And so, um, that changed everything and once the father said his gun was missing then we knew you know that was the case well and you didn't um, never find did any, find the gun yeah and you didn't find any shell casings on the scene either so i mean no. i don't want to say that this was uh -huh. sophisticated you know i mean and i hate to describe any killing as sophisticated but some some criminals plan ahead and some don't you know um but 
for a 14 year old, 15 year old perpetrator to have the foresight to pick up the shell casings is, is a bit mind boggling to me. Yes. The, uh, so that night uh, we had the dogs come out from Alto. Alto is a state prison here mm. in Georgia. And uh, we had two of their um, dogs come out to see if they could pick up the scent. And they did. They picked up scent in the house and ran it out the back into the woods. Okay. And they told us at the time, which was, this was critical. And, and it was, it was, uh, it was so bad that it made this case last another 20 years before it got solved. They told us that they lost the scent out in the woods when truly what happened, the dogs ran to the neighbor's house, which is where the perpetrator lived are now you that, are you ever going to tell me a story where <laughs> it was just a straight up crime and there wasn't somebody in a position of authority who <laughs> did something so awful like what is it with these crooked cops that you like what i am i think it's uh i think it's <sighs> a lack of integrity and character because the uh I, I don't know. I think it's just sometimes power gets to their brain and it, it supersedes everything else and yeah, that with greed. Yeah. It's really but anyway, so the so the dogs did run next door. The reason the dog handlers did not tell us this that night was because Tony Pruitt's father was a captain at the Alto Correctional Institute. Oh, that's just great. <laughs> so we, we, you know, we can't report on our own. We can't tell that the dogs ran next door because, you know, he's, he's one of us. We don't want to get his kid in trouble. Yeah. That takes the phrase back the blue to just a whole new level. Yeah. So anyway, uh, the agents, two of the agents, Charles Stone and Jim Holman went over there to uh, Tony's house that night or the next, the day, the day that we found her and uh, attempted to interview him and, it, and it's almost shocking the comment he made I think he, he might have been smoking pot I don't know but uh, I think that was the, the the end result was he was not in his uh, true uh, mental state he, he made a comment to the effect of uh, he uh, if he did it he didn't remember it and what what person says something like that if if I did it I don't remember it that kill somebody and you don't remember it i mean look fran i'm not going to tell you how i know but i don't think that's what marijuana does to you i would have no clue about that i, <laughs> but I just uh, feel like that is i don't think it makes you totally oblivious to right actions. <laughs> and that is just a super red flag shady comment if i did it I don't, I don't remember, remember it. it. Yeah. I mean, if, if you didn't do it, there would be a lot more conviction in your voice, I think. Yeah. He had been known to, uh, to uh, hurt animals and <gasps> cut things and, you know, in, in interviews with neighbors and other people, we found out he had done a lot of those things that are, you know, uh, very traditionally indicators of this type of behavior of someone that's going to commit commit a murder. Yeah, psychopathy so he, or that um, that serial killer triad, right? Is oh, harming right. animals, uh, starting fires. That's right. Um, and and you got to remember, this was the day after Halloween too. Oh so yeah, Halloween I never even night. thought about that. 
It was the night. It was the day after Halloween night. Yeah. So I don't know if he had been been partaking in other uh, psychedelics that made him into a different uh, demeanor or what what his nature was that night. Sure. But uh, the agents did go over to his house, and one of the agents, this is kind of a. <laughs> A ploy you see on TV now, one of the agents, oh, I need to use your bathroom <laughs> technique. And they go to, he went to the bathroom to see if there was, you know, anything of interest in the bathroom and kind of look around the house. But Slick uh, move. Yeah, they, uh, they didn't really find anything. So he was not arrested immediately. Uh, he went on to uh, get married. Uh, at that time, there was no DNA back in that day. Uh, he went on to get married and um, uh, he got had children, got divorced. And about 20 years later, another agent picked up the case because it, it's considered a cold case at this time. Sure. 1998, uh, they went and interviewed his ex-wife and she told them what he had said to her about this incident. And they arrested him based on that. And I think they had done some more dna because they had collected a lot we've collected a lot of evidence there, yeah a lot of evidence which was now able to be you Process. know put back through the lab yeah, yeah. um i want to interject here and say that we know that his wife mary his ex-wife had finally come forward um during this interview in 1995 because she had learned and let me just say this guy's a real piece of shit um, she had learned that Tony had been sexually abusing their child, yeah. which was one of the reasons that she finally came forward with this information. And actually, um, the GBI or the local police department, whoever was in charge, you know, resurrecting this case had said that one of the defendant's friends had also testified that Pruitt had told him at a party in the 90s that he had killed Lisa. And then that friend subsequently had ended up having a conversation with Tony's ex, Mary. Um, and they compared notes on what Tony had told them. And, and to both of them, it sounded like, yeah, he was absolutely uh, responsible for the death of Lisa Garish. Yeah. The agent that I spoke with, the, the we're going to uh, play a part of his uh, his in, uh, encounter with the case. Uh, he said that as recent as I think six months or a year ago, he checks on it to make sure he's still in prison or if he's died. Wow. Uh, he's still in prison. He got, uh, he said it was actually 20 years to the day that um, he testified in the grand jury 20 years later that he was actually uh, indicted he pled guilty he got life imprisonment without parole good and um yeah he's he's still in prison so he'll he will die in prison he will never be released so fran i've heard you mention previously not in this episode but in others that um rarely do you stumble into a case uh or onto a crime scene where there is a quote-unquote smoking gun so I want to, I want to say that, um, you know, I'm sure you as an investigator and me as a true crime sort of junkie, I have a lot of gratitude for victims who can sort of tell their own story through their crime scene. Um, you know, you had described being able to follow Lisa and the way you said it really humanized her and the setting because what you were really following was a trail of blood 
and yes. you were you were seeing the events that led up to her death um, unfolding. And I'm sure as an investigator um, there on the scene, I mean, you can you can really sort of vividly picture this in your head. A lot of times, <clears throat> I think that I what I did was I tried to, uh, and I don't know if this is some kind of kind of sixth sense that, that investigators have. For me, it was trying to put myself in her shoes sure. as a 13-year-old coming home from school, probably being, I don't want to say bullied, but picked on by this uh, uh, young man next door. Pressured, for probably sure. Probably pressured is a good word to, to uh, do sexual activity with him, and she probably didn't want to do it, and she probably just was fed up with it. And I kind of, I kind of felt that when, you know, uh, she's sitting there relaxing, watching television, drinking a glass of tea and wham, he comes in the back door, sneaks in on her, puts a knife on her, cuts her hand. That pisses her off. It would have pissed me off. Yeah. That was like the ultimatum. Like, I am so done with you. Yeah. She goes to the sink. She's talking to him. There's not like a physical stranger encounter where there's a fight in the room okay so i knew immediately it was not a stranger yeah so i felt it was somebody she knew so she goes to the kitchen she tries to take care of the, the bleeding hand you know and then she decides at that point she's going for the gun she goes to the back bedroom where she knows where the gun is and he's probably she's probably running that far goes yeah. to that closet in her dad's bedroom and grabs it. He well, gets to, it away from her. He overpowers her. Oh, sure. Well, and I mean, to be a 13-year-old, I mean, you're a child. You're a yeah. baby. And, mm -hmm. you know, for her to make that connection that, I mean, killing him was her only way out. And who knows yes. if her intent was to shoot him in the leg or to shoot him in the chest. You know, who knows? But you know, she was filled with such an imminent sense of dread that she knew that was her only way out. And, you know, when victims tell their own story in such a way, you know, it's supposed to make the investigation easier for you. Like, mm -hmm. if you recall in the Murdoch case, um, Paul Murdoch, the son of Alec Murdoch, um, who Alec subsequently was found guilty of murdering, um, they had referred to Paul as the little detective because, in essence, he helped to solve his own murder with the yes. Snapchat video uh, placing yes. his father at the scene. So with the dogs, that's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm unaware of the circumstances under which um, Lisa and her brother Michael's mother was no longer living in the home with them, but I'm, I'm trying to comprehend and there's just no way to do it, but, you know, compounding the unfathomable loss of a daughter and sister in this home that you share with your family and then the tremendous weight of not only not being able to find any justice for the killer but michael garish being pegged as the prime suspect in this murder for so many years i mean it's heavy. It's really he actually had a he actually had a pretty solid alibi. <laughs> yeah, he was at work. Mm -hmm. Um, but from some of the newspaper clippings that I had read, oh, you know, yeah. people that it's a small town, you know, they, and they painted that brush on him. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. So I just um I'm really glad that there was finally some 
you know, is there ever really justice? I don't know. Well, there was some other uh, sexual evidence that we won't go into that uh, indicated there were some other things going on there at the house that were definitely um, not proper, I'll say, sure. not not uh, common, and it kind of threw the case into a different direction that we had to run that rabbit and then come back out of that hole and say, okay, that, that's not the way we need to go. We need to go this way. Right. So those things happen in lots of cases. You have to, you know, run them down and make sure they're not what, what they are and then proceed. Absolutely. And I mean, as an investigator, having to really focus that lens, I mean, because you're right, I, I'm sure that, you know, there's always evidence that leads you down a different path and, you know, could even be evidence of other criminal activity, not necessarily in this case, but in others. Um, so finding a way to draw the line and shift your focus back to this case right now. Um, I, I mean, that's got to be so difficult, but, you know, you're really good at these things. Well, I don't know. I think it's just a matter of having done it for so long. And, you know, the even though victims don't realize at the time, you know, that when things happened, that they are leaving a trail of uh, evidence. Uh, she actually did. She actually painted a picture and there was a plethora of evidence there to, to show us what happened. I mean, it couldn't, if it had been on videotape, it wouldn't have been any better or any clearer. Yeah. And so your gut instinct told you from, from what moment that this was the neighbor? Did you kind of feel that all along? Did you know it was Tony? How, you know, I didn't know it was out. Tony. I, I knew it was not. I felt it was not the brother. Yeah. Because of the alibi. But um, I didn't think it was Tony until we uh, knew that the dogs, dog handlers had lied to us. Then I knew it was him. And the comment that he made about if I did it, I don't remember it. Well, yeah. Okay. So when did you no. find out that the dog handlers had lied? Uh, it was some months later, it was several months later that we found out and it was kind of on the QT. I think the guy didn't want to get in trouble. He didn't want to get in trouble, the handler. And he, uh, we went back and re-interviewed him and said, you know, tell us again, exactly. Cause I walked those woods. We were looking for the gun. Sure. I walked those woods and walked those woods and it was grown. It was, it was over knee high. And what I read was that um, Tony had actually taken the gun and hidden it uh, under a rock in a spring uh, in a little body of water in the woods. So, I mean, yeah. How would you have found that? Never. I mean, I mean it would have been difficult. I mean, today you would have been able to find it, but not back then. I mean, yeah. we didn't have metal detectors. We had very little uh, tools in our toolbox to work with other than, you know. Yeah. Well, in, in your efforts to wrap up this case and try to bring some justice for the Garish family, you actually sought the counsel of uh, somebody outside of oh, your yes. circle. And <laughs> this, I think, is very interesting because I know, I know that your stance initially had been very skeptical on this. So tell me about your visit with the psychic. This is actually the first time that, that uh, we had ever... Uh, attempted to use a psychic 
Uh, I had been very skeptical about it, and Agent Holman had located this lady. She she was in in the North Atlanta, and somehow either she had contacted him or he had contacted her. We went to her residence. I remember specifically going in. We knocked on the door. He and I went into her residence. She did not know a lot about the case. Uh, at that time, I don't think there was a lot of information in the newspaper. Um, That's what you she, want when you go yeah, see a psychic. She you didn't don't want them to know from the newspaper. Yeah, she didn't know specifics. So um, we went in, and it was just like you would imagine a um, psychic's home to be, very uh, celestial, very, very uh, endearing, very calming type atmosphere. Anyway, we went to a room. We sat down on the on the floor amongst pillows, and then there was a table in the middle. And I remember she uh, started uh, talking and speaking, and and at one time she she just started giving information that no one else would have known. And now I was still the skeptic, and and so was Jim. And um, as the more she talked, the more I believed. And um, I didn't really, um, she didn't really, she said it was, she said it was a neighbor. Okay. And she said that it was someone that she knew, which well, obviously that's true. And that the neighbor is true. And she said that um, it was about uh, not wanting to deal with sexual encounter, which you can kind of surmise that from her sure. age. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, the things that she said and the way that she said it, made us believe that we were on the right track with Tony Pruitt. She, of course, she didn't ever say a name or anything like that. But the kicker to me was what, why I believed her was out of the blue, she says, uh, now I know you're both skeptic. I, I feel that from you. You're both skeptics <laughs> and you don't really believe what, what I have to offer you. And um, she said, but I will tell you this. I know that you, Jim, are fixing to take a journey, and you're going to be doing, you're going to be doing some training, and you're going to be away for for uh, uh, several months with your training, and um, I think it's going to help you in your career. Well, she didn't know, but Jim was fixing to go to the FBI National Academy in Quantico, Virginia, that is for three months. Wild. Now, how how would she, from the clear blue, know that? Right. So that was kind of the clincher for me. Right. She told him what he was going to do. And she had never met him before, knew nothing about him. That was not public information. That is insane. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, you hear about cold cases and active investigations using psychics. And I mean, psychics are just like any other people, just with an elevated gift. But I mean, it's like there's plenty of people out there who will tell you just what you want to hear you know mm -hmm. what I'm saying and um this just seems like I mean she she was good at what she was doing she had a gift Jim didn't really believe in it you know he'll say that to you but uh I believed her I believe she was spot on with what she had to say have you seen a psychic since Fran uh not in any not in any you know not in any cases I worked since then that was the only one Wow. That's wild.
I'm pretty excited that we are going to be able to um, share with you some information that Jim has provided to Fran from his perspective on the investigation. That's correct. He, uh, I was able to give him a call. I actually found him when he retired from the GBI. He was a special agent in charge, and uh, he retired and went out west. He lives in, I believe it is Wyoming, Gray Bull, maybe it's Montana. I'm not sure now. Uh, anyway, he lives out west, and um, he is 76 years old. And uh, he was a prosecutor out in the, out there for a while, and he's retired again. And uh, I uh, was able to go over with him a lot of the cases that we worked together. We worked several cases together. In fact, we worked the, a previous episode that we did on the um, Oglethorpe County uh, land grab. Yeah. And he, he recalled that case, so. Um, anyway, uh, he has a lot of uh, insight into uh, supporting what we've just discussed. So it's interesting to see it from his perspective. That's wonderful. Well, let's let's take a listen to what Jim can tell us about this case. Jim, do you remember exactly any of the specifics about why you felt it was him or some of the comments that he made? It was just... Uh... It was just, a, he was a neighbor. He lived about a hundred yards or so from her. And, uh, and uh, he was, his, some of his other neighbors, if I recall correctly, uh, mentioned that he was sort of weird. And we got to looking into him, uh, another agent, Charlie Stone and me, uh, got to looking into him his background and he was uh he was just strange as uh, they talked about he killed small children uh, small children he killed small animals when he was uh when they knew him he was uh i believe he was 15 at the time right, right. he had just turned 15 this this was in if i remember correctly this was in uh 70, I believe it was uh, November the 1st, 78. She was, she was killed probably on Halloween or the day after. And, and she had come, she had got off the school bus, as I remember, because I was yeah. worked part of that with you. She got off the yeah. school bus, went into the house, and as, as I remember the evidence, um, there was evidence to show she was sitting in a chair in the living room. There was a glass of tea on the fireplace. Yeah, they had, uh, they had converted their, uh, a, a lot of these old ranch houses were back then. They had, uh, a carport on one end of them and Lisa's house had been that way, but the house had been converted and that that room was made into a a great room or a den or whatnot and there was a like you said there was a fireplace in there and and there was a uh there was a door that went outside to the backyard i remember that yeah and I'm, if i remember correctly the when we looked at the body we kind of made it initial uh 
estimate based on the hands and whatnot that that was a stab wound in her throat. And then she had two more bullets right at the top of the back of her head. Mm. Or toward the top of the back of her head. And what we come to find out is that her daddy kept a... uh, it was a thirty-eight, I believe. I believe it was a Charter Arms thirty-eight pistol. Yep, that's right. That I don't believe we ever recovered, and and uh, if we did, we did it later. But uh, what happened is he kept that in the top closet in the, his bedroom, so we surmised that she had made a break to go back uh, and get the gun out of her bedroom once he'd been cut. And uh, yeah, a struggle that ensued there in the bedroom. And he, had, uh, he got the gun away from her. Yeah, and then he shot her. And she was laying with her feet toward the kitchen, uh, uh, laying between the a dresser and her, the foot of her daddy's bed with her head pointed out back toward the door. Yeah, I remember that. And uh, it was funny, we used that uh, back in those days, we had some, we had Polaroid cameras, the old Polaroid cameras, but we were still using, I don't remember when you went through agent school if we still used them or not. I guess, well, we did if you were on the, on the, uh, Gary's case too, so we had uh, we used those big three by five cameras, those big press cameras like you see in the old movies with the flash bulbs and whatnot. Oh yeah. And they were a pain in the butt. <laughs> and normally back then the agents, you know, we processed our own crime scenes, but that case was such a horrific scene and uh, whatnot and. Uh, it was a protected scene, you know, out of the weather since it all took place in the house. And I called the crime lab to get some uh, folks from the lab to come up and process the scene. And they came up and I'd taken two or three pictures with a Polaroid camera that we had. Or I may have even taken some with uh, 35 millimeter cameras that we had or that I had myself, I don't remember. <clears throat> Back in those days, we didn't get a lot of equipment uh, issued to us, and I don't believe we had cameras issued at that time. And uh, Anyway, there wasn't many good pictures, and every picture that the lab took, which I had relied on to be in the... <clears throat> Right pictures, none of those turned out. Yes, I do remember that. And uh, uh, one of the one of the things that I recall was early on, you and Agent Stone uh, pretty much knew that the perpetrator had to be the person that lived next door. This young man, Tony Pruitt who was around 15 years old. And part of that came about through your interview with him. Do you remember any instances or any comments what led you to believe it was him? 
or that he had been, had he been molesting her in the past? Did you have any thoughts on that? Uh, we had either, either Mike told us or her brother or, uh, a neighbor told us that, uh, uh, they had been some kind of interaction with Tony or he liked her or it may have been somebody on the bus. They both rode the bus together. I see. And, and, uh, of course, Mike was the, uh, Mike was the initial, uh, suspect, the brother, suspect, mm -hmm. but of course he was, uh, uh, he had a pretty good alibi. He was at work. Uh, and, uh, his, his buddy picked him up and he was at work and we eliminated, we eliminated those folks fairly quickly. And when Charlie and I talked, uh, we had some bloodhounds that came up and they followed the scent from the back door up to the back of, uh, Tony's house. It just wasn't very, uh, it wasn't very, uh. We didn't have the, they said that they lost a trail at the back of the, back in, uh, but just behind the house, not up close to it. And yeah. just gone over that way. And I remember that. that. Mm -hmm. was, at the time, that area was woods. I think it's all uh, houses and whatnot now, and it's built up in a subdivision, but. It was all wooded back then. I remember that was one of the main reasons that we got thrown off the case because the dog handlers had run the dogs or told us that the dogs had left the back door off of that den and run directly up, you know, straight behind the house up into the woods. When the reality was they had gone over next door to the neighbor's house. And the reason that they did not tell you or I the information about, uh, you know, where the dogs had really gone to was because uh, these dog handlers came out of Alto State Prison. And what was the relationship to the the neighbor? Yeah, Tony's daddy was a, uh, was a, a captain or a major or something with the, uh, as, as a guard at the state prison. So uh, they didn't want to... They didn't want to get him in for trouble. Whatever, for whatever reason, they didn't tell us that it went apparently right up to the back door. Yeah. Which would have been a lot stronger evidence at the time. But uh, anyway, when Charlie and I went to talk to the neighbor, he was just, the only way to describe him was weird. And we, uh, we uh, picked up some... Uh, did, didn't he make a comment? I remember this comment that he said to the effect, if I did it, I don't remember. Do you remember? Yeah, seems like, seems like uh, now that you, I hadn't remembered that, but it seems like now that you kind of refreshed my memory that he did say something like that. But he was just, he was just weird and he couldn't account he didn't have a good accounting for his for his time. Of course, he, like I said, he was fifteen, and we really shouldn't have been talking to him without a parent or somebody there. But uh, 
back in those days, we didn't have those rules and whatnot. <laughs> I remember when you went over to his house that uh, one of you was talking to him and either you or Ch Charlie went into the bathroom to check the bathroom out. Do you remember that? Yeah, yeah Charlie asked him uh, if he could use the restroom, which is kind of a sneaky investigative technique you even see it on some of the cop shows now where it kind of gives you a permission to go to the bathroom and if you just see anything on the way of course that's uh, something you can use or at least we did back then i hadn't kept up i don't believe you could i think that'd be all right now too but but uh he went back there and he just noticed some knives and whatnot, I recall, in the, in the bedroom. I mean, in, in the, looking in the bedroom when he just walked past. Because his, his uh, house was laid out almost exactly, probably the same contractors built it. His house was laid out almost exactly like Lisa's was. Yeah. And he had a diary, not a diary, uh, or a journal or something. Yeah, anyway, he had something about it. Kept up with his thoughts and all that in. And he let us look through that, or we looked through it at some point anyway. But, uh... Very strange, I remember. It had, uh... And that may have been where, if I did it, I don't remember. No, he would have told us that. But, uh... And, and this, uh... In this journal, he talked about killing a rabbit or killing birds or doing something like that, which is kind of a trait of a of somebody that uh, has, might be a murderer. Yeah, has a propensity and, to do it. Yeah, and he got uh, that was kind of that was kind of odd. And there was this the writing in the thing was was just uh, different, but we just didn't have enough to... Uh, Not enough to arrest him. We never did. And then we went, what, 20 years before? Where, where did the DNA come from? We, uh, of course, this was way before we... Uh, it was way before DNA was out. Oh, yeah. We didn't know. We never even knew he'd heard of DNA then. But, uh... So... I wouldn't, I wouldn't know, you know, he collected a lot of evidence at the, at the time. All her clothes and whatnot was recovered during the autopsy. And, uh, she wasn't, she wasn't raped, was she? She was just murdered. No, yeah, she was just murdered. And it was a strange, we thought there was some, uh, uh, some kind of sexual component to it. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure that some, some psychiatrists looked at it, they would find a sexual component to it. But there was just some evidence at the house that didn't have anything to do with the murder. Correct. And that was sexual. And anyway, Tony, uh, Oh, it's not long after that case. Well, it was a couple of years afterwards in 1980. I was transferred down to uh, 
down to Atlanta and uh, on, the, on the Wayne Williams case. And uh, it's attached down there. That's the child murder cases in Atlanta, right? Correct. And then uh, I never, uh, I never got when I, I was down there on that case long enough, but I finally just got transferred down down there, and I didn't get back to Gainesville until ninety uh, ninety two, and uh, in ninety two I came back to Gainesville as SAC. And of course, people had been working in Gary's case off and on different agents, and there was several different theories. And when I got back, of course, we did everything on paper back then. We had several cases, several files, file folders. Uh, I think the Gary's case must have up the better part of an entire drawer at the office. And, uh, uh, so when I got back to the SAC, I told uh, Mike Roberts was the agent that was responsible for, uh, for Habersham County, which is where uh, uh, Lisa's, uh, Lisa lived in, in the, outside the little community of Demarest, a town of Demarest, which isn't much of a town, it's very small. And, uh, uh, she uh, uh, and Mike was assigned to Habersham County, and he he was uh, so I mentioned the Garish case uh, about him because it was it was one of those cases that just kind of stays where we uh, I felt we knew who the murder murderer was. We could never just never got enough to uh, to prove it and. Mike started working on it, and and uh, uh, Tony had uh, by this time he was up in his mid twenties, and he had uh, got uh, got uh, uh, married and divorced, and uh, uh, like the, the old saying is about hell has no fury. Uh, we got some, uh, Mike interviewed his wife and whatnot, and she admitted about Tony telling, uh, uh admiring her, uh, uh, about, uh, that he... Did he uh, admit it to her? I believe he did, yeah. And, uh, and, uh, she, uh, she, uh, Kind of ratted him out that, uh, that helped us a good bit, of course. And I, I testified before the grand jury on the uh, uh, November the 1st of uh, 1998. Uh, right? 20 was, years I, later? I it, was 90, it was exactly, yeah, it would have been 98 because it was 20 years to the day that Lisa was killed. Although we discovered the body exactly 20 years to the day. And it was a, uh, it was the last, 
the last time I appeared before a grand jury, uh, before I retired. Yeah. That's an amazing, that is an amazing story. That was, uh, that was a case that has, you've taken through your whole career, got it solved, and you still have a great recollection of everything that happened. That's, that's just amazing. Well, our recollection is not as great as it once was. It's like I told you, some of the things I remember the clearest these days never even happened, but I think I'm pretty close on all that. I'm <laughs> related. I don't know, do you remember Tony hung himself? Yep. I got called back to go there, and uh, when we got... Uh, before we got back there, we found out that the jailer, which at the time, Habersham County didn't really have, uh, it was mostly just, uh, uh, let's just say they weren't professional law enforcement, there were deputies. And uh, they sometimes didn't do a lot of stuff right. And, uh, and, and they happened to come in uh, and unlike Jeffrey Epstein, they checked on him uh, when they heard some commotion at the jail. He was still hanging. So they go in and they cut him down. And uh, if they had just waited a couple more minutes, he'd have been dead if they hadn't have found him. But uh, they cut him down in time. And he, uh, and I'll, I'd always said jokingly, I didn't want anybody to kill themselves, but uh, uh, I used to joke that all the stuff that the, that the county did wrong, they just, the one time they could have waited about about <laughs> two minutes, but they happened to come by on time and saw him hanging there and cut him down, so uh, we ended up having a trial, and if I'm not mistaken, he got life. Yeah. That was incredibly insightful getting to hear from Jim. And as usual, I'm just absolutely gobsmacked at your ability to recall these details, Fran. I mean, down to the layout of the home. I mean, you've really always done such a good job of painting a picture for us. And you know how excited I am when I get online to, you know, research my part of these cases and find that the information online exactly corroborates what you've told me. And you know, you're, you're just so talented in so many ways. And after all those years of waiting, I'm just really thankful to know that, um, you know, Tony is, is serving his time because Lisa didn't deserve this. Nobody deserves this. And I hope that her family, you know, has been able to find some semblance of peace, uh, through the years. So I do too. It's a it's a very it was a very sad case to work. Um, there there were other cases that I've got another case that we're going to be talking about on our next episode that involves a, another real tragedy of um, an an elderly couple that uh, worked every day of their life and their son who was on drugs. This is all, all drug related. Uh, shot and killed both of them with a shotgun. Uh, in 1982. Yeah, Fran, just let you know, we're coming back to talk about another case where somebody's doing something bad. I mean, it's unfortunate 
but these are real stories involving real people and real lives. And, you know, we are, we are thrilled to be able to breathe life back into these so that history is not lost. That's right. Thanks again, Fran, for your insight today. Always a pleasure. Um, We can't wait to come back next week with the next episode of Snow in the Mountains. Thank you, Danielle. Bye for now. And please behave. Listen in next time. Snow in the Mountains is recorded in North Georgia by Fran Bishop and co-host and producer Danielle Eigelhart. Find us on social media at snowinthemountains.pod or email us at snowinthemountainspodcast at gmail.com. Your listens, follows, likes, and shares help our show greatly and are much appreciated. New episodes are released every Wednesday. Find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen. 